Well, thank you, Doug, and uh, I'm very pleased to be back here. Um, thank you, General Metcalf, for inviting me, and I always feel I'm back here with friends. It's, it's, it's really great to be back here. And um, yes, I'm known as the sort of unofficial U2 historian, but I'm not going to talk about the U2 tonight, um, only in passing. Um, instead, I'm going to talk about an airplane, or about a, a project, that you probably have never really heard of, except for one person in the audience. Um, and I like to consider this the last great untold spy plane story of the Cold War. Um, it's a US-sponsored program which, which did 585 overflights of, of communist territory um, in, during the, in 14 years during the Cold War, in which over 100 aircrew lost their lives, in which a B-17 was flown over denied territory once for 19 hours, in which the aircraft that succeeded the B-17 in this project was capable of five different missions, uh, electronic intelligence, communications intelligence, nuclear sampling, photo and radar imaging, and fifthly, dropping agents and propaganda. And that this aircraft um, was flown by Poles and Czechs and Chinese, as well as by Americans. In fact, it was mostly flown by Poles and Czechs and then Chinese. And this is an airplane, possibly the only one, although I stand to be corrected by, I think, a knowledgeable audience, possibly the only one that has that had a US Air Force designation but never actually served in the US Air Force. And so, yes, it's the Black Bat Squadron, um, a joint venture, effectively, between the US and Taiwan, and specifically between the Central Intelligence Agency and the Republic of China Air Force. I'll probably call it the Chinese Air Force tonight, um, because that's what it was called at the time. Um, in the days when the US recognized Taiwan as the legitimate government of China, albeit in exile. The squadron number was the 34th, um, and uh, the um, motto and their, their patch, which you'll see in a minute, was um, a black bat because they flew at night. And uh, that was the um, operation over China, and there was another operation over Vietnam, which extends the uh, history of this squadron uh, through to, actually through to 1972, really. Um, starting with B-17s, and then this um, unique uh, modification of the Navy's P-2V Neptune, uh, which was given the US Air Force designation of RB-69. There's the air base they flew out of. It's on the uh, west coast of Taiwan. And um, then in Vietnam, they flew C-123s. All of these airplanes provided by the US and actually remaining US property. And this is what they did. And this is their uh, patch. Um, flying by the Big Dipper. 
uh, at night, and this is the red curtain that they penetrated. And that's the symbology that they designed, the Chinese designed themselves in, in uh, about the fifth year of this operation. And it was a covert operation. Um, and certainly the US wanted it to remain a covert operation, but um, the nationalists in Taiwan couldn't resist uh, publicizing it because for them, um, part of the rationale for having such a squadron was to assert their right to fly over the mainland, um, even though they were the government in exile now, having been evicted from the mainland, having lost the civil war uh, with the communists in 1949. And um, I have already been through the, the main uh, roles. Um, and as far as the US was concerned, it became increasingly uh, a SIGINT operation um, rather than uh, a agent and propaganda operation. Um, and towards the end, as China began to develop its own nuclear weapon, which it first exploded in 1964, just before then, this squadron uh, also did um, nuclear sampling. And to set the context, uh, it was one of a number of joint projects between the US and Taiwan, um, of which I have uh, written about the Black Cats, the U-2 project. That started in 62 and lasted until 1974. And that was, of course, daylight, high-altitude photo. And um, But there were other projects. There was a cooperative low-level photo recon mission, which was flown in the uh, fast uh, tactical jets. And they would fly along uh, the mainland uh, coast, flying out of uh, Taiwan, um, uh, penetrating as far as they could, obviously, in terms of their range, nothing like as great as the U-2, which went a long way inland, as did the Black Bats. Um, a major ground-based signals intelligence operation uh, also, which uh, uh, was run by uh, the Air Force Security Service and the National Security Agency. Um, and this all started, as I'll explain a little more, uh, with civil air transport, which was um, for a long while in the 50s and 60s, the flag-carrying airline of Taiwan. But it was actually owned by the CIA. It was a, an airline that had been created in, on the mainland um, but had fallen on hard times and uh, was actually bought by the agency in 1950 through a proprietary company and um, thereafter led a double life as Taiwan's legitimate uh, passenger-carrying airline, but also um, doing covert uh, missions for the CIA. And Western Enterprises, the WEI, was the um, cover company for a range of uh, CIA operations in Taiwan in the early part of the 50s, which included um, attempts to uh, land agents and create um, problems for communist China all along the coast opposite Taiwan. The politics of all this is, is quite interesting, of course. Um, uh, 
Chiang Kai-shek, the generalissimo, uh, the leader of the nationalists, uh, that was his slogan, back to the mainland, and uh, everything he could do to assert that right uh, to go back, uh, he, he would sign up to. Um, the US policy was, um, I call it equivocation, because uh, uh, the US needed Taiwan, and they realized this during the Korean War, um, when China entered the Korean War and proved um, uh, an unexpectedly um, formidable uh, foe there, and it, that became, it became realized that, that Taiwan could be um, used as a, um, an attempt to uh, draw Chinese attention away from Korea. But the US um, policy was um, never fully supporting Chiang Kai-shek in his ambitions. Um, for instance, under the Truman administration, um, he did not allow uh, or sanction any military operations by the nationalists against the mainland. Now, when President Eisenhower uh, came into power in 53, 54, um, he lifted this ban, but privately, US officials told Chiang Kai-shek that they would not approve any large-scale attack against the mainland that might draw the US into a war with China. And this policy was formalized in a mutual defense treaty between the US and Taiwan in December 54, and that treaty lasted until uh, the opening, the Nixon opening to China, uh, and that, that treaty was finally ended in, I think, 1978. Um, Many of you may have heard of the ta first Taiwan Straits crisis in July and October 58, uh, when it seemed that Mao Zedong was m mobilizing to move against the mainland, uh, move against the island of Taiwan, and uh, bombarded the two remaining islands close to Taiwan, Gamoy and Matsu, which Taiwan had retained. Um, uh, a second Taiwan Straits crisis less well-known uh, in July, June 62, again, when intelligence indicators were that um, uh, the Chinese were, were seriously interested in uh, assaulting Taiwan. And um, finally, on the politics, as in other theaters, other regions, um, a difference between the CIA and the State Department, which comes out in a lot of the declassified documents, and um, the CIA were very important in Taiwan, in, especially in the 50s, because the, um, f practically speaking, the station chief was far more important than the ambassador. So the origins of what I'm, going, I'm talking about was CAT, Civil Air Transport. Uh, this is um, the airline's first uh, C-54, uh, DC-4 airliner. Um, and um, they uh, flew C-46s, the C-54, and a B-17 over the mainland from Taiwan um, during the Korean War, um, dropping agents. Um, and um, while they were doing that with American air crew um, supported by recruiting the first Chinese co-pilots into the into CAT, uh, the 
Chinese Air Force itself uh, started a night photo operation with a couple of special, uh, specially modified B-52s uh, using photo flash bombs uh, in 52, yeah. Uh, but the uh, situation changed dramatically in November 52 when a C-47 provided by CAT that was flying uh, agent dropping and recovery missions out of Korea over Manchuria was shot down. Um, five American aircrew, three of them were killed, two of them, the kickers in the back, the uh, uh, people, that, the two guys that were um, uh, throwing out the bundles of leaflets and, uh, and uh, making sure the, the Chinese agents left uh, the plane correctly, uh, they survived and were captured mm -hmm. and they were held in China um, oh, for something like 20 years. Um, and as a res although American air crew that were captured by North Korea and China during the Korean War were repatriated after the war, um, these two were not. And actually the US government did not officially acknowledge them and so the Chinese said, well, you're not acknowledging them, therefore we're keeping them. And um, so that led to a um, new policy it seems, um, from President Truman, that if we're going to do this flying over mainland China, let's get Chinese to do it. And so the CAF Special Mission Group was formed uh, in 1953, predecessors to what became the Black Bats, and two B-17s uh, were provided, and they moved into Sinchu Air Base, in June of 53, um, and the unit shortly thereafter acquired a couple of B-26s. And the B-17s uh, flew long-range missions, dropping agents. The B-26s uh, majored on leaflet dropping. Uh, they were fast, and they went in low level at night. Um, they did drop agents as well. <laughs> Uh, the agents um, were carried prone in the Bombay and um, were ejected by simply opening the Bombay. <laughs> but they didn't do much of that. The B-17 was the best airplane for dropping agents out of, so these planes did um, leaflet dropping. And um, a typical flight flown by this crew in February 1954 was actually daylight flight. Uh, over Shanghai. This was um, China's, uh, mainland China's Sino-Soviet Friendship Day. And so um, it was decided that, uh, uh, that this squadron would um, spoil the party, spoil the day, as it were, by flying down Main Street, Shanghai, um, dropping propaganda leaflets, reminding the people of mainland China um, that they were effectively subservient to the Soviet Union. Um, this airplane was, these airplanes were flown up until 1959. And here, um, here are some examples of the leaflets. These are actual examples of the leaflets that were, were dropped during these missions. Um, here is Chiang Kai-shek, um, and um, this is a, a Chinese New Year message urging cooperation uh, amongst the anti-communist fighters. Here's a... Um, 
a leaflet which is criticizing the personality cult which, is, uh, which was developing around uh, Mao Zedong. I think the next one's fairly self-explanatory. And finally, um, one that, um, uh, the one on the left uh, says it's only a matter of time before China's true government returns. Um, and there's the 12-pointed star of the nationalists. Um, and the one on the right is actually rather rude um, in Chinese, but it effectively says that um, the blood debt will be replayed by blood. Here are a couple of um, maps which show the um, typical missions that were flown by the B-17s in the 1950s. In fact, the one on the left shows the first uh, B-17 or mission, uh, which was, um, as you can see, a very long one, uh, all the way to Lan Chao uh, to drop um, agents. And um, the one on the right here is a mission in 1952, the 2nd of January, the first time they went close to Beijing. Um, and this one was uh, intercepted twice, and as you can see, they made use of uh, Korea. This one landed at Kunsan Air Base, and they would often stage either landing in Kunsan and back to Taiwan, or stage to Korea to launch the mission out of Korea. Now, when these flights first started, China's air defenses were very rudimentary, especially uh, anywhere other than in Manchuria where the Korea and, and around the Korean Peninsula. Um, but of course, once the Korean War was over, China could redeploy its growing um, inventory of Soviet-supplied uh, MiG-15s to, south, to the south. The first thing that that forced was the end of, of daytime flying. Um, and um, the squadron had to learn how to fly low at night. Um, but the losses began to come. And these, this is the roll call of losses of shootdowns and crashes in, in the first decade of this program. The, um, First, uh, yeah, um, the other thing to mention is that um, when they first learned, learned to fly at night with, from the US instructor pilots, they, they flew under full moon conditions. Uh, but as Chinese air defenses improved, um, by 57, they had to learn to fly under dark moon conditions, so they would be even less visible to um, fighter opposition. And the uh, first B-17, we don't know why that one was lost. Um, it may have flown into high ground, or it may have been a lucky shot by um, anti-aircraft uh, weapons. Um, the May 55, the, the B-26, the next one, uh, that apparently, it looks like that one flew into the sea uh, before entering. Um, of course, flying low to avoid um, early warning radar detection. Um, the, f the two in um, the next two, uh, this was um, shot down uh, by a MiG-17 day fighter um, uh, using uh, the full moon 
That's all he had, his eyeballs, to see this plane. Um, I put this in. This was a, a US Navy um, P4M Mercator uh, SIGIN gathering airplane, uh, which was flying off the coast, along the coast. Um, but um, that also flying at night, but also uh, shot down by a MiG-17. And so therefore, these operations moved to flying only in dark moon uh, conditions. Um, this one flew into the ground inside China, trying to evade um, AAA. And this one was the first airplane in this program to be shot down by a radar-equipped MiG, a MiG-17, which the Chicoms were introducing in the late 50s. Incidentally, um, the leaflets were effective at least insofar as the Chinese Air Force was concerned. Here you see a, a leaflet that was dropped um, over Chinese airfields. And that leaflet was inviting Chinese pilots to defect to Taiwan and giving them course and distance to go because, of course, Taiwan had been erased from the maps that they were given um, uh, for security reasons. And... Um, it actually worked. You can today go to the Republic of China Air Force Museum at Gangshan on Taiwan and you'll see five MiGs and an IL-28 Beagle bomber, uh, all of which uh, defected from Taiwan to, sorry, from the mainland to Taiwan um, in this period. B-17s, B-26s, um, pretty old airplanes, Second World War airplanes. So, in the mid-50s, uh, the airmen assigned to the CIA's air branch, who were almost exclusively U.S. Air Force officers um, on secondment to the CIA, uh, made a proposal to um, provide a new airplane for these covert missions. And this was Project Cherry, and it was the conversion of these uh, P2V Navy patrol planes um, for the covert role, and um, uh, they were under con they were given the contract went to the Skunk Works, of course, and so these five airplanes were actually rolled out of the P2V production line at Burbank, rolled across the runway into the Skunk Works, where the special mods were done, um, and um, it. it SIGINT was, of course, a major part of the fit, but uh, there was also um, uh, an enlarged hatch for dropping agents. Uh, there was a crew access hatch here that was enlarged. Um, all sorts of things were done to this airplane, and it actually ended up being a pretty expensive program. For instance, the one idea was to provide a um, wooden um, boat which would fit in the bomb bay and uh, could be dropped. Um, and uh, there were all sorts of uh, extra add-ons uh, tried out as this program went into um, development testing. And then the operational testing that was done at um, Eglin Air Force Base in Florida. And um, these airplanes, two of them were deployed to Wiesbaden in Germany in April of 57 and uh, remained there for two years. Uh, they were flown by uh, Poles and Czechs, mainly Poles, who had been employed by uh, the agency 
as deniable airmen, non-American airmen, to fly covert missions in Europe. Um, we still don't know very much about that program, um, what exactly they got up to, um, but that's not the focus of uh, what I'm talking about tonight. Um, the first, the other two airplanes, one remained at Eglin for um, developmental testing, the other two were deployed to Taiwan in December of 57. Uh, when the airplanes were withdrawn from Germany in 59, they cycled through Taiwan as well. They did a couple of other things in the early 60s uh, out of the US. Again, there's been no declassification on, on that. Um, bringing those airplanes in meant that the airbase at Sinchu had to go through a major upgrade, which the US Air Force, uh, the US government paid for. And this is an aerial shot of Sinchu, as you can see, shortly after the um, two um, P2Vs arrived. And this is the fleet. So this, this was the 34th Squadron fleet at the time, so you can see the B-26s down here, um, the two B-17s, and a C-47 that was used as, uh, to, to transport um, the uh, American contingent to and from uh, Taipei. And this um, project um, had the CIA uh, cryptonym of uh, Poly, uh, ST is the digraph for um, the Far East, so all the projects in the Far East were, had the ST uh, digraph. Um, on the Chinese side, it was carried as um, Project Goshawk. And uh, the two, the management of this was uh, through the agency's covert side in Washington. And then the successor in Taipei to the Western Hemisphere Company, uh, but still a cover for the CIA station, NACC, Naval Auxiliary Communications Center. Had nothing to do with the Navy, this was a cover, cover name for the CIA station in Taiwan. And... Um, from the U.S. side, the program would be man was managed by an Air Force colonel who did a, a two-year tour, and he was in charge of the air section within NECC, and he had a, an agency employee acting as the manager down at uh, Sinchu, but all the missions were planned here, and all the American expertise in this resided in, in here under the colonel's uh, command. From the Chinese side, the Ministry of Defense's Intel Bureau uh, was running the show, uh, through the um, intel chief, a general in uh, headquarters of the CAF, and then a squadron commander out at Sinchu. Um, there's the one, the one of the first squadron commanders, there's the U.S. colonel, um, and this really was a, a um, tight joint operation. And the product, uh, the PACOM Elin Center up in Japan uh, was a um, a major supplier of requirements and also a major analyzer of the um, SIGINT from these flights. And here's a few um, pictures to give you a flavor of the, uh, of the closeness of, of the two sides. Um, here you have um, Ray Klein, who was the station chief when this, uh, when in, from 57 to 59, in Taiwan. He then came back to Washington to run the analytical side of the agency, but he uh, became great friends 
um, with the Chinese in Taiwan and um, continued to have a lot to do with them and indeed was a champion of Taiwan right the way through into the 70s. Uh, general Yi Fu En was the general that ran the program in the Chinese Air Force, the Intel General. He, was, he had been Chiang Kai-shek's personal pilot and then had gone to the States and become the air attaché in Washington. So he, he had good English and knew how to, uh, knew how to deal with the, the Americans. Um, here's um, uh, another colonel, that uh, Colonel Lackey, who ran the show in Taiwan uh, in the early 60s. And he's putting Chinese wings on a CIA uh, ELINT and electronic warfare specialist who served two years in Taiwan and um, uh, was the gentleman that finally persuaded me that I really needed to, to uh, research and write this book. Um, down here we have Chang Ching Kuo. He was the son of Chiang Kai-shek. Kai uh, and he ran the intelligence programs. And as Chiang Kai-shek grew older and less capable, Chiang essentially was the power behind the presidential throne in Taiwan. And uh, he, he actually succeeded to the presidency upon the death of his father. Um, very interesting man. Um, very down to earth. Um, could be ruthless, but um, I, he was very intelligent and he really set Taiwan on the path to prosperity uh, and economic progress um, in the 60s and the 70s, while not yet relaxing its, uh, the, the, the tight political control of the nationalists. And he's having a, enjoying a joke with Colonel Lackey and his wife. Um, this is um, the wife of the General E there. And this is the wife of one of the agency's um, uh, 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 experts in, in the program in Taiwan. Her name is Polly Rogers. And um, so it seems very unusually that um, the digraph that the, the, for the Polly program, which this became, um, was um, named after her. At least that's the way she tells it. <laughs> still alive, living in Washington. And so here's a couple of um, P2V missions to give you a flavor of what they got up to once they started. In fact, this one on the left is the very first P2V mission. Uh, and if you've got sharp eyes, you'll see 20th of March, 1947. At 11, the, the, Chi the Chinese calendar, the Taiwan calendar, for reasons too complicated to explain, is 11 years behind the US. That mission is... Um, uh, 1958 March and as you can see it was a, a fly down the coast over Hainan into Guangdong uh, and back um, and um, here is a, a, a and that um, that got good e-lint collection from the very start on this mission and that dropped more than 2,000 pounds of leaflets over the big cities of Guang, uh, Guangdong province um, and um, and these missions were all long, long missions, um, 12 hours, 55 minutes, this one. Here's one going, uh, going north, uh, 13 hours, 25 missions, all at night. Um, and um, facing nearly all the time some serious opposition from the Chinese air defenses. And one of the things I learned from researching this story is how ingenious the Chinese defenders on the mainland were 
at combating these flights. An absolute top political priority to combat them, of course. Um, they um, took the Soviet MiG that they'd been given with the Scanod radar, and they adapted it. They, um, it was an air-to-air -air fighter. It, the, 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 the scan of that um, radar um, uh, produced a lot of ground cl clutter if you flew it at um, low level. And, of course, they were chasing the black bats at low level. So they inhibited the 14-degree downward scan in elevation to, to 7 degrees. Um, and in their GCI, they soon modified the rigid Soviet doctrine of, of, of um, control, um, of um, ground control of the intercepts. And um, so they, uh, as I said, one MiG had some success, but uh, not yet a radar-guided, a radar-equipped MiG. But um, the MiGs were uh, overshooting. When they were joining with the P2Vs, when, when they were vectored, they were overshooting because the P2Vs were, were um, flying uh, slower. And remembering that scan, uh, the MiGs would have to f slow down, fly higher AOA, and then that kind of negated that, um, that odd modification they'd done to the radar scan. So the next thing they did was they had some of these planes, Tupolev Tu-2s, the Second World War bomber. So they took the scan on radar out of the... Uh, MiGs, and they put it in this plane, and they put a, put a second pilot in it, and um, they flew those against the uh, intruders from Taiwan. They installed 25-millimeter cannons um, in the wing routes. Uh, the second pilot was actually a radar operator. He displayed the na displaced the navigator in these TU, uh, in these Tupolev bombers. Um, and they tried that for a while. Um, the China, uh, incidentally, the um, ELINT operators on the P2Vs um, didn't know they were being chased by these planes because they couldn't see them, uh, but they did, know, they did pick up the radar signal, and of course it was a scan-odd radar signal, and they couldn't figure out how the MiGs were staying with them so long, whereas before the MiGs were overshooting. Well, eventually they figured it out. Um, but uh, these 12 and 13 hour flights over the mainland and these planes couldn't keep up for that long. So then the Chinese modified TU-4s. This was the uh, B-29. Uh, the Chinese have been given 10 of these uh, by the Soviets, Soviet-built uh, versions of the B-29. And so the Chinese took the search radar off the belly of the B-17s and put it on the top of the B-17s and, and created an AW attack version of the B-29. So, um, and, and they had two intercept officers in, in the fuselage of, of the 29, plus two navigators. Um, so, uh, there are stories in my book of air combat at night between P-2Vs and B-29s. Um, and finally, uh, the naval air arm of the People's Republic came up with a, a scheme, a coordinated scheme, putting flare bombs on Illusion Isle 28s and uh, then uh, having MiG-15 two-seat interceptors. There's a trainer version, but two pairs of eyes better than one. Um, and if they got the... Um, 
the movements correct with the, and the timing correct with the dropping of the flare bombs, then that would light up the, the intruders and then the MiGs uh, would have a shot at them. Um, I'm going to... Uh, am I going to go on to the next slide? No, I've just come back a sec. Um, I'm going to give you a flavor. I, uh, this is an extract from, from the book which gives you a flavor of one of these um, engagements. Um, on the evening of the 19th of November 1960, several MiG-15s and MiG-17 PFs tried and failed for two hours to intercept a P2V uh, commanded by Colonel Daisicheng that entered Chinese airspace over the Bay of Hangzhou. One of the newly converted TU-4P, sorry, TU-2P uh, medium bombers, the Tupolev uh, Second World War planes, uh, also tried to follow the intruder. The P2V's SIGINT operators recorded 30 separate radar signals as the aircraft flew low over Anhui province heading northwest. Then the intruder came within reach uh, of the smaller TU2Ps. No, I didn't mean TU4s. The TU4 started off, the TU2s were further inland. Two of those were launched from Zhengzhou in Henan province. But although ground control intercept uh, uh, controllers successively, successively vectored each of those TU-2s into position behind the intruders. Neither could acquire the target because of jamming put out by the P2V. The second TU-2 followed the P2V for 27 minutes across Hainan at 3,000 feet or lower. The P2V's pilot, uh, his electronic warfare specialist, and the nose gator, the visual guy in the nose, worked together to try and shake off the, their pursuers. They were heading towards the Shan mountain range, 4,700 feet high. Colonel Dai increased power and opened the spoilers and prepared to make a sharp turn. As the mountain loomed less than two miles ahead, he racked the aircraft into a 60-degree right bank and followed the nose gator's directions into a narrow valley. And at the same time, the EW operator deployed chaff. Flying behind and slightly below the P2V, the front pilot in the TU-2 failed to spot his quarry's turn. Meanwhile, the second pilot behind him at the radar scope station locked onto the chaff. The TU-2 crew fired at a non-existent target. Now the mountain was directly ahead, and uh, the pilot struggled to climb over it. He failed by 250 feet and the TU-2 slammed into the peak. The rear observer on the P-2V escaping down the valley saw the fireball erupt. The 34th Squadron crew flew on with the radio, office, the radio officer listening to the vain calls from the Chinese ground controllers trying to contact and recall the TU-2. Same mission. Air defense controllers reacquired the P-2V on their ground radars ordered the other TU-2 already airborne to follow it, and scrambled the third TU-2. By now, the intruder had spent more than four hours over the mainland and was near Xi'an in Zhenji province. Another firing pass was ordered. One of the TU-2s closed to within less than a mile. Again, though, its radar was jammed by the P-2V. The GCI controller told the crews to fire, the TU-2 to fire anyway, but nothing more was heard from them. They, too, had flown into rising ground at about a thousand feet southwest of Yeshan. The remaining TU-2 was recalled to base. 
at the debriefing, the Chinese concluded that both crashes were caused by the pilots being temporarily blinded by tracer fire from the cannons located in their wing routes. The P-2V was now heading along its return course to Taiwan, but more danger lay ahead as the aircraft passed over Hainan again. Triple-A guns opened fire, opened up, firing at least 150 rounds. The P-2V maneuvered to escape them, but the aircraft's engines had been operated at maximum power for a long time, evading the pursuers, and one of them now began to backfire. Dai, Colonel Dai retarded the throttles and set course direct for Taiwan as the rest of the mission was aborted. The P-2V limped back to Sinchu and landed safely after an overflight mission that had lasted 10 hours and 45 minutes. This is a, not Colonel Dye's crew. This is another crew um, who were lucky to come back. That's AAA uh, flat damage from uh, a mission. And of that group here, I think photographed in 1960, um, before they began losing these airplanes, I think only three of that group uh, survived the squadron. The rest of them were killed in the subsequent shootdowns and crashes. And this is the losses of the P-2Vs over mainland China um, or in, uh, on their way there. Uh, the squadron commander, Colonel Yin, you saw him earlier shaking hands with the US colonel. He was killed uh, in uh, crashing into high ground in Korea at night on, the, uh, on a staging flight into Kunsan. Um, in 1961, this a very, again, more ch Chinese communist ingenuity. Sadly, um, the mission planners uh, were kind of getting, flying some of the same routes more than once, and the Chaikoms figured out uh, the route in from Korea uh, across the Shandong Peninsula, and they managed to send extra AAA guns to the area, and um, they ambushed this, literally ambushed this plane. Um, here's one, the, the third one crashed before coasting, um, coming, um, coming uh, low across the sea uh, to try and avoid the um, early warning radars, 50 feet. Um, and uh, the first uh, one that was shot down by MiG, and then uh, finally the illumination technique accounted for another squadron commander, Colonel Sun. And as you can see, uh, full crews on these flights. Uh, pilot, co-pilot, and command pilot. Um, navig two navigators, uh, flight engineer, uh, two electronic warfare officers. Um, what else? Um, radio operator listening to the uh, Chaikom air defenses. Uh, two kickers, two parachute dispatch officers responsible in the back for um, pushing out the leaflets, and the very occasional agents who were dropped. Uh, anyway, you, you got up to uh, 12 or 13 people, and um, that's how the roll call of dead went over 100. And um, this was an electronic countermeasures game as well. Um, the P2Vs were consistently improved with the latest um, EW technology that, that the US could, uh, could offer. Uh, some of it especially commissioned by the agency, some of it 
uh, brought in from uh, 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 Air Force or Navy contracts. Um, the bomber defense officer was a new position created um, to operate the very clever, absolute state-of-the-art repeater jammer that was put on the plane in 61. Uh, a new analysis center set up at Sinchu to really analyze, take the recordings and make the time traces of all the events of the mission to try and learn lessons and, and uh, improve the survivability of the planes. Um, exhaust flame suppressors because uh, the mix uh, the, the, the airplanes, uh, uh, even in that darkness, um, you, you could see the, the, the flames and that would be, in fact, the MiG-17 that shot the 1963 P2V must have been eagle-eyed. He, he saw the flame suppressors. That's all he saw. He didn't. And finally, even a terrain-following radar, um, probably the f uh, just predating the F-111, the Texas Instruments, the same company, um, but put on these planes in late 63. And yeah, even head-to-air missiles um, were put on. I, I discussed what value those were, not much. Um, probably would never have worked, but um, anyway, um, they were added. Um, five lost, five P2Vs lost, five, the five original airplanes, so the agency had another two converted by the Skunk Works, and those two did survive and went back to the States. Um, and these are actually the last two uh, seen at uh, Sinchu in about 1965. And um, a new program was started um, to replace them, and uh, this was it. Uh, take the successor to the P-2 as the Navy's standard patrol plane, the P-3, and make that into a covert airplane. And three... This was a program led by the Office of Elint in the CIA, um, and uh, it was... Um, Lockheed didn't get the contract, much to the annoyance of Kelly Johnson, who kind of presumed he was going to get the contract, because he always got these contracts. But um, so when it went out to tender, he, he um, submitted a kind of a two-page um, summary, which basically said, send money, we'll do the job. And... Uh, the agency felt that wasn't good enough, and they gave the uh, oops. They gave the um, the job to um, oh, going back. They gave the job instead to LTV Electro Systems in Greenville. That later became E Systems. Um, so they did it. A lot of money spent, as you can see. The um, a lot of new equipment went into these planes. Very expensive job. Um, and they went to Sinchu in May and July of '66. But they never flew over the mainland. Um, here's a view of um, Sinchu in 1966. You can see the first of the P3s has arrived, uh, the last, one of the last two P2Vs. Um, they used a standard P2V5 for crew trainer. That, that didn't uh, do penetration missions. Um, C123, I'll talk about that in a minute. And there's the faithful C47. Um, the um, terrain following radar was giving problems. The Chinese pilots didn't really trust it. Um, and so they spent a few months ringing that out uh, in flights around Taiwan. But in the meantime, um, a new director of central intelligence arrived in Washington, Richard Helms. And uh, he reviewed this program and some others. And he felt that it was not 
um, providing uh, enough intelligence to justify the expense and the risk. I should say that after that fifth shoot down of the P2V in 64, that pretty much closed them down. They only flew about two overflights the following year and two in 66. So they weren't doing much and Helms decided to end it and um, the airplanes were recalled um, to the US. Um, Changqing Kuo was furious about this. Uh, it caused a major rift for a time in Taiwan-US relations because Changqing Kuo, who was a clever cookie, sort of saw this as the thin end of a, a developing wedge between the US and Taiwan, which indeed would prove to be the case with um, the opening to China in the early 70s. Um, so the squadron um, operation uh, was um, over mainland China, came to an end, in, and they withdrew the airplanes in nine, early 1967. Um, what good had all this done? Well, of course, this from the nationalist side, this is another one of those propaganda leaflets. Of course, this is what they hoped would happen, and this was what, you know, that the, the mainland uh, would rise up in rebellion and the People's Liberation Army would see the error of the hierarchy's ways in Peking and, and uh, they would all flock to the nationalist banner. It never happened as it never happened in Eastern Europe, in Albania, in the Baltic states after the uh, Second World War. The communist system had a lockstep on its population and nothing was going to change that. Certainly a bunch of leaflets and airplanes from Taiwan wasn't going to change that. From the US side, um, I still find it difficult to assess the value. Um, undoubtedly, um, a lot of, a lot of SIGIN, SIGIN in about uh, the Chinese air defenses was obtained and passed into the uh, Strategic Air Command and uh, could uh, provide um, target folders and target avoidance for B nuclear, uh, B-52s um, if they ever had to uh, attack um, mainland China. Um, but it's difficult to tell exactly what the worth of this was um, uh, and, and make a final call on that. Um, so finally to the um, kind of um, epilogue to this story, if you like, um, the magic, uh, the, the project Haylift, um, in, um, as the US involvement in uh, Vietnam grew, in the early 60s, uh, the CIA began dropping agents into North Vietnam. And to do this, they turned to the black bats from Taiwan. And um, they were equipped with, um, initially with uh, C-123Bs, and they started flying over the mainland. I've got that wrong, it was 61, I think. Um, and um, that was the CIA project. Um, in 1964, uh, the um, MACV, the military airlift, uh, not military, the military assistance command Vietnam uh, was formed and took over this um, covert air operation uh, through the special ops group in Saigon. Uh, but uh, they kept employing the Chinese guys. The um, airplanes were modified twice um, and these Chinese crews from Taiwan no fewer than 253 missions uh, over 
North Vietnam and Laos and Cambodia um, uh, from 1962, actually, through to 1972. Um, and they lost airplanes in, in training. They had one shot down by Viet Cong on approach to um, uh, Saigon. Um, but they didn't actually have any shot down over North Vietnam, although there was aerial combat there too. A bizarre story about how the North Vietnamese had, oh, what was it, a couple of um, Laotian pilots had defected to North Vietnam, two T-28s, and they um, chased the um, C-123s at night uh, from North Vietnam with these T-28s, and one of them got in a... Uh, some shots and crippled the airplane, but the airplane was able to get across the border and land in Thailand. Um, but they still lost air crews in training, flight losses, and in that um, uh, shoot down near Saigon. Um, and as I said earlier, the missions over China had finished in 67, but not quite. One more mission. I'm sorry that I've um, screwed up here. There should be a picture of a C-123, uh, sorry, a C-130E in here um, because this was a unique mission that uh, uh, was flown uh, in 1969. Um, and its objective was to drop uh, sensors, motion sensors, light sensors uh, in the deserts of northwest China uh, to um, gather intelligence on the Chinese nuclear weapons development program. You'll remember that the Chinese had um, uh, exploded their first nuclear device in October, I think, of 64, and um, relatively little was known about it, and um, the agency and the US intelligence community were desperate to find out more. They had they uh, carted um, nuclear-powered sensors up mountainsides in Tibet and uh, or Iran and uh, line-of-sight attempts, all sorts of things. And then they came up with this scheme to drop palletized sensors out of the back of a C-130 uh, over uh, Lopnor and uh, Shangchenzhou area. Long, long way, long, long way to go. And the Chinese were chosen to do it. Uh, from Taiwan, this squadron, two crews selected. Off they went to the USA in September of 1968. They took, um, they checked out on C-130s in the training unit, think it was in Tennessee. Uh, and then the agency took them to Groom Lake, uh, where they did their mission training. And they were the first foreign uh, airmen, and I think maybe the last foreign airmen, to be trained at um, Groom Lake. And um, a C-130E was specially modified by the agency's special ops division, and uh, it had all the latest gizmos, TF TFR working by now properly, infrared um, nav system, all the rest of it. The sensors were fascinating. They were made by the Sandia Labs Laboratory, very clever stuff, um, and they were put on pallets, and the pallets were disguised as rocks and painted in desert, as, as if they were desert rocks. And... Um, and so they would they were rolled out the back they would be rolled out of the back of the, the C one thirty over the areas. 
And uh, all this training was done, a lot of training. It took, as you can see, I mean, just to train the guys through the C-130 basic into the operational training uh, and then ready to do this took um, that long. So you can have a sense of the, how badly US Intel wanted to know more about China's nuclear weapons development. And so off they went and they flew the mission out of Takli, China uh, at um, a gross weight exceeding the manual, of course, for the 123 at the time. And it was flown on the night of uh, 1718 May of 69. And there it's coming out of Takli, Thailand and going very carefully designed to try and uh, early, what, there were radars, uh, this is the Himalayas, and um, they knew where the radars were, of course, because the P2Vs had plotted all those, and so carefully mission planned to terrain mask this airplane from the Chaikom radars uh, to the uh, east. And uh, it was a 30-hour mission. They kind of ran a bit short of fuel on the way back. Uh, here's here's the, drop the drop zones, uh, and uh, they only picked up a very brief trace of um, painting by um, Chaikon radars. Uh, so it was a mission success, um, but we don't know whether it was a sensor success or not because that's not been declassified. Uh, actually, I should say that hardly any of this has been declassified on the US side, but we've got most of our information uh, from Taiwan. Um, a second mission uh, was planned, and the crews for that um, were deployed to the States and were training at Groom Lake when they were pulled back. And um, I think that um, the consensus is that um, by that time, we're in 1970 now, um, satellites and, other, and the, the ground sensors, um, the new nuclear detonation sensor system uh, had improved sufficiently. They didn't want to take this risk again. So um, there we are, um, a very unique and uh, pretty much unknown operation. The, chi uh, the nationalists are very proud of it. They announced um, their successful overflights from time to time. Um, to this day, they're very proud of it. Um, they've uh, just opened a few months ago a museum, a little museum to this uh, operation in Sinchu town. Uh, very nicely done. I was pri privileged to be there for the opening. And if any of you are likely to visit Taiwan in the next year or so, uh, ask me for a leaflet uh, about that uh, museum and, and, and please try and go there. So summing it all up, a couple of quotes uh, I like to use. Uh, they're in the book. Um, first of all, from the Chinese side, from the general in charge of intelligence, and that's him there inspecting the B-26 crew. And then uh, one from my mentor on this program, I suppose, um, uh, from one of the Americans, but um, summing up, I think, uh, the American view from the inside of this program. And so I'll finish by putting up a picture of the Generalissimo himself, Chiang Kai-shek, with... Uh, uh, crewmen from the Black Bats. I'll um, pay tribute to my co-author in Taiwan, Clarence Fu, who's uh, published a number of aviation books and, uh, of course, was an invaluable part of this project. He 
has in fact published this story in Taiwan, in Chinese, and my book is based on his book, but of course I was able to um, use my US contacts and in interviews to amplify the story and um, provide more of the political context uh, for a um, Western audience. Um, 